May the Lord help us see him as the ruler of our hearts, the gracious Heavenly Father who loves to exert his loving, merciful authority over us. People approach a crisis differently. And each of us do different ways, respond in different ways to crises. Some may panic. Others are seeking to understand the problem before trying to fix it. Others go immediately into fix-it mode. Others ignore it uh, or strive to seek to divert their attention to something else. Uh, Some want to get to the bottom of the issues while others just want some sort of band-aid type of solution. I wonder what is your way, your typical way of responding to crises. Perhaps it's depending on what type of crisis it is, uh, depending on what crisis it is and how close we feel to it and how close we feel that it affects us. We might take various options from the one I had listed here. While there are various ways we can respond to a crisis, uh, there are two primary alternatives that we must be aware of. It's the path or the alternative. The one alternative is turning to the Lord, and the other is turning to man. It is trusting in the Lord or trusting in man. All the various ways we are tempted to respond to a crisis will typically fall in one of these two broad categories. Today's message puts on display these two paths of the path of trusting to the, in the Lord or the path of trusting in man. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. I want to remind you of, uh, of what the message of the entire book of 1 Samuel is. As you're turning your, way, your, your, your Bible in, in this passage of Scripture, the entire message of 1 Samuel could be summarized in this one sentence. From the chaos of self-rule, to the king after God's own heart. From the chaos of self-rule to the king after God's own heart. And the chapter we're about to read continues the story of the path of, of how King Saul, even though he was chosen by the Lord to be a king, the first king of the people of Israel, humanly speaking, uh, that King Saul began a path of self-rule. That path began last chapter in chapter 13, as we saw last week. And that path continues today. We'll see more evidences of how the path of self-rule manifests itself. The path of trusting ourselves, or the path of trusting other people instead of the Lord, is a path of self-rule. So let's see how this unfolds for us in 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'll be reading the entire chapter, which is a little long, from verse 1 to verse 52. I encourage you to listen along to the reading of God's Word. And as we listen and read this passage, consider the contrast between these two paths of trusting. Here is God's Word. 
One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Uh, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozaz, and the name of the other was Danath. The one crag rose on to the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many, or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to them, to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from among us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of, the, of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was uh, taking or talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. 
Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines had not be, has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim, 
But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give the means. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with a tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Milcal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to use his word for our hearts this morning? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you revealed yourself to us through your word. And even through such accounts of battles that seem awkward, filled with details that may puzzle us, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through your word this morning in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that our hearts may be drawn to trust in you. We pray all this, Father, for the glory of Christ and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit which dwells among us. Amen. Friends, you realize that if, uh, if I was not committed to preach expositionally, I would never choose this text to preach to you from. And this is one of the beauties of, of actually being committed as a pastor and as a church to preach uh, through longer sections of the Bible and leave nothing out. This chapter presents us with a contrast between Jonathan and Saul and between the contributions each of them made in a fierce battle against the Philistines. Uh, chapter 13 began this the setting of, a, of the looming threat of the Philistines against Israel, the Israelites. And King Saul is uh, faced with, with leading the people of Israel through this new threat of the Philistines. We saw the setup of that battle in chapter 13. And here what we see is a contrast 
between the different ways Jonathan and Saul approach the battle against their enemy. Their different approaches reveal the different objects of their trust. Their different approaches reveal something about of what was going on in their hearts. What we see here is a clear contrast between a man who truly trusted in the Lord and a man who trusted in people or in himself. That's why I call this chapter as two paths of trusting. We as a people of God are invited to learn from this contrast and particularly to be warned about where the path of trusting on people, whether that's other people or ourselves, where that path leads us. That trust may take different shapes for every one of us. But all those paths would lead to a particular outcome. And we will see the outcome at the very end in the third point of this message, which will be very short. The first two points will be longer. And we'll see where the outcome leads. Since our chapter could be divided easily and clearly in three segments, it just so happens that this message will have three points. So here's, here's a, the way we're going to look at this chapter and what I think the Lord is teaching us through this chapter. We're going to look at the path of trusting in the Lord. We're going to look at the path of trusting in man. And then we're going to look at impressive achievements that fall short. The path of trusting in the Lord. The first major section of the chapter highlights Jonathan's secret expedition to attack the garrison of the Philistines. Now, John chose to do it by himself, assisted only by his armor bearer. In verses 1 through 3, we see twice this comment that no one knew what Jonathan was doing. His dads didn't know, nor did the army know. Now, this move on Jonathan's side to do this secret expedition was not an act of uh, independence or self-reliance. It's not the, uh, the impulse of the teenager who wants to do things without his parents' knowledge. It's not the impulse of the, of the young adult who just wants to do things on his own. Nor is it like our society's virtue of relying on oneself and on no one else to get the job done. No, none of these were what motivated Jonathan to do this expedition secretly. Uh, to understand the significance of Jonathan's approach in this battle, we should remember how Saul approached this battle in chapter 13. Remember, if you remember last week, in chapter 13, after the Philistine army gathered against the Israelites, um, Saul became terrified that, one, there was a, a big army, the Philistines, coming against him. He was frustrated and impatient that Samuel didn't show up in time. And more so, he was frustrated and became frightened that his army began scattering away. And that led him to hurry up and offer the, uh, the sacrifice to the Lord without Samuel the prophet. And thus Sa uh, Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord. 
In, in chapter 13, Saul assumed that he had more chances with a bigger army than waiting for the Lord to show up. Uh, Jonathan has a different perspective than Saul. And this is where it helps us understand Jonathan's approach in light of the way Saul began approaching the battle even as early as chapter 13. Uh, it, Jonathan's approach is very, uh, very different because his vision of God is very different. His theology of God is very different than, than Saul's. Look at verse 6, which really summarizes uh, in one short verse Jonathan's theology and vision of God. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is the most important verse in this first section of this chapter. Here we see Jonathan placing his confidence in the Lord. And notice what kind of view of God Jonathan had. What did Jonathan believe about the Lord? Look again carefully at this verse 6. First of all, Jonathan was convinced that the Lord does not need many in order to bring victory. Jonathan was convinced that the Lord did not need Saul's army to bring about the victory. Jonathan placed his confidence not in his dad's resources, nor in his own skills, but in the Lord's ability to save without human help. To God, it makes little difference how equipped or powerful we may feel. Uh, the society around us tells us that there's strength in numbers. There's even a guy who, who made that logo. There's strength in numbers, but how you organize them is a challenge. That's what he said. It makes sense to people who assume a worldview where God does not exist, where everything depends ultimately on us, it makes sense. Strength, there's strength in numbers. I'm not at all surprised that the world believes such logos, such mottos, but surprising to hear when God's people put their confidence in numbers instead of the Lord. Here Jonathan tells us that God is able to bring victory regardless of whether his people are many or few. It's a way of saying to God, our numbers don't matter. It makes little difference to him. And this is Jonathan's view of God. I wonder if this is your view of God. Friends, where do you look for victory? Jonathan's confidence that the Lord can give victory regardless of the numbers is what led him to go on this expedition secretly, alone. Jonathan's trust in the Lord was not an actionless faith. He didn't just put his arms and just look over the pass. No, he, his faith in the Lord led him to action. But he acted the way he did 
alone, not out of independence or self-reliance. He acted because he trusted that the Lord does not need people to get the job done. Our confidence in the Lord's ability can wean us off of the instinct to put confidence in our own human resources. It can lead us to act apart from those resources. Jonathan's view of God, his theology of God was so strong that it led him to act by not relying on his daddy's army. Uh, the second truth we learn about Jonathan trusting the Lord was that Jonathan trusting the Lord was not presumptuous. Jonathan's trust in the Lord was not presumptuous. Notice again, verse 6. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, at this point in the story, Jonathan is not yet assuming that the Lord will work the salvation. Quite frankly, Jonathan, at this point in the story, does not know what the Lord will actually do. Uh, here is Jonathan in his trust in the Lord. He is not going for the name it and claim it idea. It is a very popular approach in the prosperity gospel movement that you name what you want to do, God to do and uh, you just expect God to do it. And the more you expect it and the more confident you are that God will do it, uh, that will determine whether or not God will do it. That's a name it and claim it or a version of the name it and claim it theology of prayer that is so powerful in the prosperity gospel movement. Before Jonathan attacks the Philistines, he wants to assure himself whether or not the Lord wants to give them victory. He does not assume that his feelings are enough. He does not want to assume that his wishes for victory are enough. His faith is not confident in his own wishes or in his demand that God will do what he hopes for. No. There is a soberness in Jonathan's faith at this moment. Jonathan allows the Lord to dictate his plans and his moves. I love how one Bible teacher put it so beautifully. John's, perhaps, is part of his faith. He both confesses the power of Yahweh and returns the freedom of Yahweh. Faith does not dictate God as if the Lord of hosts is its errand boy. Consider, dear friends, that when we think about trusting in the Lord, there should be a difference between trusting in the Lord and trusting in the outcome we wish the Lord to do for us. And then the outcome of such a God-trusting expedition in Jonath on Jonathan's part. The outcome is described in verse 15. We read, there is a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Now, the story, as you have heard it read earlier, presents this geography of the two crags of stone. They're like these tall passes, uh, this pass with tall walls of stone. And Jonathan has to go down in the pass and from there, if, if, if he gets the the clue that the Philistines are inviting him up, he'll go up and climb up the pass. The chance of, of two enemies going through that pass and going up the and the Philistines being at the top and, and trying to win them, defeat them. Humanly speaking, there's just very little chance anyone could do that. And yet, nevertheless, 
Jonathan, once the Lord confirms to him that the Lord wants to give the enemies in his hands, Jonathan goes over this path. He climbs up hands and feet. And once they arrive at the top, somehow, we don't know the details, but Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 of the, gar- of the soldiers in that garrison. And, and, and it, as, as it's that the Lord used as a, as a beginning to, to start a panic that rippled. And it's not just a panic, the earthquake. Jonathan couldn't make the earthquake. It was the Lord. Jonathan couldn't create such a, uh, a multiplication of the effect of the panic. It was the Lord. The outcome of Jonathan's expedition gave courage then to other Israelites to join the battle. First to Saul and his army, then to the Israelites who had moved among the Philistines, and then those who hid themselves in caves. They all joined the battlefield. But friends, the starting point of, of this turn of events in the battlefield was the Lord, not Jonathan's effort. Not Saul deciding to join in the army. Not the turn of those who had hid among the caves and who joined up as well. It's the Lord. Notice how the scene closes off in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Bethaven. The Lord acted a great salvation that day for Israel. If we remember how this battle started in chapter 13, when you remember the the, the number of the Philistines who had gathered and their army and the soldiers being described as many as a sand on the seashore. And now we hear that that vast army that was countless in numbers is dispersed and is, is now r- is running away. Only the Lord could make and give the Israelites such a victory. And it wasn't the 600 soldiers that Saul had around him. It was a young man, Jonathan, trusting that the Lord can do whatever he wishes, either with many or with few. Oh, dear friends, this is where we see the path of trusting in the Lord applying in various ways to our own lives. The trust in the Lord may take different forms for us. It applies differently for every one of us, depending on what crisis we're facing. What is one area in your life that you have a hard time trusting in the Lord or the Lord with today? Consider your ways of life. Consider the circumstances and the challenges you're facing. One of the areas that Christians are facing today is is the... trouble, the lack of peace over what's happening in our nation these days. Uh, We don't know what will happen with the outcome of the election. Whether or not the election goes as we hope this week, we as Christians believe that God is still able to accomplish His plans regardless of the results of the election. I wonder if you and I can believe that God can accomplish His plans regardless of who is in the White House. At the end of this week. Can we believe that? Regardless of how the election turns out. We believe that God is able to work independently. Of the strength of our nation. We certainly desire government officials. Who will allow us to worship God freely. Who create policies that bring us peace and order. 
But friends, our ultimate trust must not be in the results of this election, but in the Lord who can save either by many or by few. In contrast to Jonathan's trust in the Lord, the second major part of this chapter focuses on the alternative path, trusting in man. So the second point we want to look at this morning is the path of trusting in man. It up to, if up to this point, Jonathan was in the spotlight and his trust in the Lord was highlighted, from this point forward, the spotlight shifts to, to the king of Israel, to Saul. He was the leader of the army. And notice the contrast between him and Jonathan. Jonathan did not need an army to go against the Philistines. Saul not only needs the army, but he tries to lead it in his own strength. And we see it in four moments in this story. Four moments that reveal how Saul not only needed his army, but tried to govern it in his own ways. First, that moment, the first moment where he sees Saul's approach is in verse 19. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Through this gesture, what Saul is doing, he is interrupting the priest in seeking the Lord and saying to him, cut it short. We need to go into battle. Look, the Philistines are losing. This is the moment. Cut it short. Stop it. We can't waste another minute. Here's a king who thinks he can get God to hurry up. And he himself is so hurried in the presence of the priest that he tells the priest to cut it short. Friends, trust in man often manifests in us through being hurried with God or being tempted to, God, to cut God short or to cut our time with God out thinking we don't need to wait for him to finish up. Friends, consider your ways with the Lord. You may not be the king of Israel. You may not be in, the, in a battle against the Philistines like Saul was. But consider your ways with the Lord. If you treat God with the same attitude of hurry and interruption as Saul did, it shows that your confidence is not really in the Lord, but in your ability to carry out your battles. So ask yourself, are you in a hurry with the Lord? If so, watch out. It is one of the ways the path of trusting in man manifests in us. But there's a second moment in Saul's approach that we see his, his trusting man show up. It's in verse 24. And, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid a note on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. When Saul presents his plan to keep pursuing the enemy in battle, notice what is his, what is his motivation. It's not so much to free Israel of the enemy, but to take personal revenge. Did you notice that? Saul says, until the evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. This shows us that the path of trusting in man 
is often motivated by self-focus. It's easy to turn a difficult circumstance to be more about us instead of being about what is right in the eyes of God. When we assess a difficult situation through our self-centered lens, the solution often turns out to be more about vindicating ourselves. Friends, be aware of this danger. As I look at my, at my own life, it's so easy to make a challenge or a difficult circumstance be about me. It's so easy to, to feel like I'm the center of who's hurt or who's affected by the challenge. Friends, consider how easy it is when we rely on other people, when we trust in man, we put on the lens of self-focus and we turn circumstances to ultimately be about us. And when we do that, we act in ways that are selfish and harsh. And this is what we see, the third moment in, in Saul's approach. Not only is he, is he taking things personally in a selfish way, a third way we see Saul's trust in man show up is that he is putting his confidence for victory on what his army can produce on the battlefield. Saul is saying to the soldiers, you can't have food until we accomplish this goal. And what is worse, he places a curse over them. He's now using the threat of a curse to ensure that people comply with his orders to keep fighting without any lunch break. He assumes if he can just crank up the, the, the fight hours of his army, if he, he assumes that if he can just increase the production hours of his army, the battle will be won. Here's a man who puts confidence on people's performance and therefore begins treating them with harshness. Saul knows how to get results accomplished with human means. It is by coercion and harshness. Friends, when you lead your life by trusting in people, sooner or later, you give in to the schemes of manipulating them, of getting them to do what you want to do. And friends, that's dangerous. It's dangerous for you, and it's dangerous for the people that you're working with and around you. And I want to ask you, is there an area in your life where you are inclined to deal with others with harshness? Is it perhaps your spouse? Is it a family member? Or is it friends? Is it co-workers? Is it other believers? Friends, trust in man often manifests in us by being harsh with people. You may not be putting a curse on other people, but you're acting on your own power to get them to act in the way you want them to act to bring about the results you expect them to bring. Saul's harsh measures and curse kept his army to follow his word for the day. But when evening came, when the, when the, when the curse expired, it set up the people that evening to sin against the Lord. Saul's curse was so harsh that by the end of the day, when the curse expired, it led people to become like wild animals, killing sheep and eating them with blood in them, and causing people to sin against the Lord. Friends, 
adding unnecessary burdens on the people can lead them to make sinful responses. Be cautious. And there's a fourth way we see Saul's path of trusting in man manifested. It's through toxic ambition. Through toxic ambition. When Saul wants to pursue the Philistines a second time after, after they, they figure out that the, the, the Israelites eating the animals with blood in them was a sin against the Lord, and Saul tries to fix it immediately and, and brings the people together so they would fully, when they kill the animals, they would fully let all the blood get out and, and then and only then eat the animals. When they figure all that out, that same night, Saul says, all right, let's keep pursuing them again in the night shift. Saul wants to pursue the enemies further. That, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. The problem is, he's trying to do it, and he's not asking the Lord at first. The priest has to remind him, hey, let's ask the Lord before we go into battle. And by the way, the priest that asked him to do that, remember how the priest was described at the beginning of the chapter? One of the one of the grandsons of Eli, the priest of Shiloh. Why was that description important in this chapter? Because the Lord told us that at Shiloh, when the Lord removed Eli, he removed Eli's priesthood forever. And here is Saul using an unauthorized priest who had actually uh, been deprived of the Lord's blessing to be a priest. That's the priest Saul is using here. And it's even that unauthorized priest that is now telling the, the king, so king, before we go into the second night shift battle, why don't we ask the Lord? So Saul agrees to do it, asks the Lord, and the Lord does not answer Saul. And in the midst of this, as a result of this, Saul begins making some other harsh oaths. He says in verse 38 and 39, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. What a toxic ambition. Because the Lord has not asked him to make this vow. Saul was not even interested at first to seek the Lord through this battle. He wanted to do it on his own. And now that he has asked the Lord and the Lord has not answered him, he's trying to come up with some ambitious oaths that pretend like Saul is very spiritual, willing to put anything and everything on the line, even the, the life of his son, Jonathan. When Saul casts lots to find out who has sinned, Jonathan is exposed for being guilty. He's the one on whom Saul's earlier curse has fallen that day. Jonathan, the one who brought victory to God's people, is now facing the curse that brings him death. This shows that Saul's harsh leadership and its curse has fallen on his own family. When Saul hears of what Jonathan has done, there's no remorse in Saul. There's, there's no realization in him that perhaps the curse he issued was wrong. Saul is ambitious to declare the death penalty should be executed immediately. He wants to move quickly with killing Jonathan, 
so that he can move on in pursuing the Philistines in that night shift. Here's a king who is more interested to pursue his plans and to execute his own words, even at the cost of the life of his son. What makes this problematic is if we read the next chapter, again, reading the story of the scripture in context. In chapter 15, which we haven't read yet, I understand, but let me give you a preview of it. In chapter 15, Saul will not be willing to kill the king of the Amalekites, even though the Lord commanded him to do it. But here, Saul is willing to kill his own son because his son has gone against his word. Saul was not so much interested to listen to God. He was more interested to listen to himself and to execute his own words. A king who cares more about his own words than about God's word. This is Saul. A king who is quick to utter curses and inflict the death penalty for those who go against his word. And is unwilling to slow down his plans, even if it means death for his, son, for his son. This is Saul's toxic ambition. Friends, the path of trusting in man leads us to toxic ambitions. So God uses the people of Israel to rescue Jonathan from Saul's hand. Saul realizes that the very people whose support he relied on now oppose him. So Saul finally gives up pursuing the Philistines in that battle, and the Philistines escape, only to return later. Friends, when we take the path of trusting in man, things become about us. Selfish ambition takes over, and when it does, it knows no bounds of what it's willing to pay in order to accomplish one's plans. The path of trusting in man relies on human schemes for motivating others, and it can breed in us harshness towards others in order to produce the results that we want. Ultimately, it can breed in us toxic ambition that brings more harm than good. You may not be tempted with such toxic ambition as, as the death penalty of loved ones. But friends, there's other forms of toxic ambition that we can be tempted with as well. I wonder if there are areas in your life in which you are inclined to pursue the path of trusting in man like Saul did. The details may be different, but the principle works out the same. Saul's harsh leadership began when he stopped waiting for the Lord. When he thought he could keep the Lord on a hurry, when he thought he could take the leadership of God's people in his own hands and lead them in his own strength, which turned out to be a harsh way. The outcome of that kind of leading and trusting is given to us in the last segment of this chapter. So the third point, the last point of this message, is impressive achievements that fall short. Impressive achievements that fall short. The third part of the section of this, of this chapter is a summary statement of Saul's reign as a king. And these verses on first read appear to give a, a positive view of Saul's reign. Notice how verses seven, uh, 47 and 48 speak of Saul's achievements as a military leader. Listen to these verses. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. 
against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hand of those who plundered them. Who doesn't want such a king? Who is effective in wars and winning in battles? And notice that even the Amalekites are mentioned here. And the war with the Amalekites will take place in the next chapter. Wh why, why is this summary given here? Why is this mentioned here? Because in some sense, the author of the book actually presents a summary of Saul's kingship and draws some conclusions about his reign, even though his reign will continue to be described for the rest of this book as a contrast to David's leadership. In verses 49 and 51 through 51, we get a list of Saul's family tree and his leadership cabinet. Why is this brought up here in the middle of the book? Why would you give a summary of Saul's leadership as a king in the middle of the book? Before the next major section of the book starts, which will focus on the king after God's own heart, on King David, the author wants us to have a quick overview of Saul's entire reign as a king. And this overview communicates two points about Saul's leadership. On one side, the summary emphasizes Saul's achievements and victories. He was not a lazy king. He was not an inefficient king. He waged many wars won many battles. He was active in recruiting people for his army. Oh, this was a very active king. But on the other side, the summary shows that Saul's achievements fall short of God's ideal for him and for his people. There's an important description in these verses about Saul's wars, particularly with the Philistines. Look at verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Why is this description important? Because the battle that has been described in chapter 14, which started in 13 and, and then 14, it ended on this note that even though there's a great victory that God has given to Jonathan in his efforts, when Saul wanted to continue to pursue the Philistines through the night, because he did it in his own strength, he actually failed to do it. He actually failed to carry out, to, to wipe out the Philistines. He merely pushed them back, and they escaped back to their own country. And here we find out that after the battle in chapter 14, all the days of Saul, the Philistines kept coming back. In other words, Saul failed to wipe out the Philistines because he took the path of trusting in man. His selfish ambition, his human schemes to get results led to a toxic ambition that failed to bring lasting results. The Philistines were merely driven away. They escaped only to return back later. The path of trusting in man does not bring lasting results. Saul is the king who won many victories but achieved no rest for God's people. To understand the weight of that, 
and to understand the weight of what verse 52 is telling us, we must remember another summary statement about Saul's, about Samuel's judgeship. Remember Samuel. Remember one of the big battles that the Lord has given victory to Samuel over the Philistines. It's a, it's a battle at Ebenezer. Let me read to you the summary of that battle and contrast that summary with the summary of Saul's battle here in chapter, 15, in chapter 14. And you'll see why this makes such a big difference. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 14. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Referring to Samuel's judgeship days. Here the prophet Samuel was not a military leader, but he obeyed the word of the Lord. And one victory at Ebenezer drove out all the Philistines in such a way that they did not return to attack Israel during Samuel's judgeship days. And that tells us, and that text tells us that God had given peace to his people. But in contrast to Samuel, Saul's victories were great achievements, but brought people no rest. The summary on Saul's reign, while it looked like a positive commentary on all that Saul's reign accomplished, in the grand scheme of things, is actually a negative comment. Israel's first king failed to bring rest to God's people despite his military achievements. It's because his military achievements were characterized by the path of trusting in man. And this anticipates a desire and a need for a better king who through one battle would achieve the, the rest that God's people needed. The battle that King Jesus fought on behalf of his people brought him the curse of, of God, dying on the cross in the place of sinners who repent and trust in Christ. He was raised on the third day from the grave. And following Christ by faith means entering into his rest. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 speaks of God's salvation to Christ as an entering into his rest. And the author of Hebrews calls people not to harden their hearts, to trust in Christ and to look to him. Friends, if you have never experienced the rest that comes from knowing Christ, and having our sins forgiven, I invite you today to turn to Christ in faith and repentance. Stop pursuing your life in your own strength. Stop pursuing the path of trusting in man. Whether, whether it's yourself or others, repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. And He alone can give you the rest that no human effort can give us. Friends, be aware of the lures to win battles and obtain achievements, but fail to give ultimate rest to our souls. Yesterday, October 31st, was Reformation Day. I know you're all thinking I thought you might say something about Halloween. It's Reformation Day. October 31st is Reformation Day. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, it is the glory of God 
to give rest to His people who trust in His ultimate power to bring victory when we humans cannot do it on our own. Oh, I pray that you would trust in Christ, that you would rely on Christ, and that you would take the path of, of leading a life that trusts in the Lord instead of man-centered, selfish ways. There will be no rest, neither for you nor for the people around you, if you continue to take the path of trusting man. Be aware of getting addicted to pursuing the trophies of this world, but failing to obtain the rest that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ.